0: Welcome to the Why Invest Podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. In this episode, we want to set out the case for allocating to private markets. To do so, I'm joined by Luke Hyde-Smith, co-head of multi-asset strategies at Waverton, and Lorenzo Marchioni, head of private markets. Now, there are a number of ways of approaching the non-listed arena, which has exploded in recent years. And in this episode, we start by identifying the problem we're trying to solve by investing in this space. We also set out the historical context, the opportunities below the radar at the smaller end of the market. We introduce and define the illiquidity premium, discuss valuations and barriers to entry for institutional capital. Now this does get quite technical at times, but it's well worth a listen if you're interested in private market investing. Finally, and importantly, we introduce the Endowment Fund, a new investment trust that we're due to launch later this year. Now, for more information on this or any of the topics covered, do email us at whyinvest at waverton.co.uk. So, without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Lorenzo Macchioni, welcome to the podcast. Luke Hyde-Smith, welcome back to the podcast. We're going to be talking about private markets, but let's set the scene first. As a multi-asset investor, what problem are we trying to solve by investing in private markets?
1: Thanks, Doug. Delighted to be back on the podcast. But I think the challenge out there for investors, without doubt, is how one addresses this well-documented conundrum, which is the 60-40 traditional balanced portfolio, 60% invested in equities. 40% historically has been invested in traditional fixed income. The challenge out there, and this is acute for us as it is other investors, when we're designing and managing portfolios to meet certain CPI targets, that 40%, which has been such a strong return driver historically, in our mind, is very, very unlikely to do the same on an ongoing basis. And thus, we believe an allocation... To a broader opportunity set, incorporating some element of private market exposure is going to be really important for investors to think about. And in our mind, is one of the reasons that we are broadening our horizons and looking at some of these unquoted opportunities. If I give you some stats just to sort of back that up and sort of frame why uh, this 40% may well be challenged. One of the charts, which really display this very clearly, is that back in 2000, over 80% of the fixed income market yielded you 5% or more. We fast forward to where we are today, and that number is just just under 1% of that market yields you 1% or more. The majority is between 0 and 3%, and amazingly, circa 20% of that market yields you negative uh, nominal yields. Or less. That's approximately 17 trillion in total assets. And what does that mean? Well, that means that the prospective return is very likely to be lower. Obviously, fixed income benefits from falling yields. So as your yield falls, the capital value rises. And when you're starting at such low levels of yield, the future returns are likely to be much lower. Clearly, there's lower income available. And finally, one's duration risk has materially increased, i.e. the sensitivity to interest rates, rises or changes, has increased. So it's even worse, than the return outlook has got worse, but actually the risk inherent investing in that market has risen as well. So we believe that some parts of the alternative universe can provide investors a better opportunity set than available in some parts of the fixed income market. We're not saying it's a replacement, we're certainly not saying don't have any element a fixed income exposure, but we are saying future returns are likely to be much, much lower. And it is our contention, and it's something that we have been discussing for some time as a firm, that alternatives in their broadest guise can help investors mitigate this pretty anemic and unappealing outlook for certain parts of traditional asset classes. And hence, we have been spending a lot of time thinking and believe that this growing opportunity set in private markets is something that we should be investing in for clients to ensure that we can meet their long-term return expectations for the agreed level of risk.
0: So Lorenzo, is this the new problem? Have investors always faced these headwinds?
2: I think what has happened is that over the last 30, 40 years, an industry has developed allowing investors to provide capital to private companies, which wasn't the case for the last couple of centuries, really, because in the past, probably pre 1970, if you wanted to participate or invest in a private company, that was something that was just the domain of entrepreneurs, people that were willing to take and had the courage and the appetite to take entrepreneurial risk. But things have changed since then. And and that has been the case for the last 40 years. Some investable products emerged that could allow institutional investors to invest in private companies. And that I think has channeled capital towards private companies without having to go onto the, the public markets.
1: I think I'll just add one thing there on on the sort of development
2: and this link between,
1: you know, the, the policies and the environment that we've been in post GSD. I think one of the definite features which has impacted all asset classes really has been the retrenchment of many banks from either lending or supporting businesses. And that has resulted in the development of a whole industry, a market, to support and grow companies on the private equity side, but also on the private credit side. So I think what's interesting to us is that, yes, you you can argue that low interest rates and central bank intervention may have had an impact on asset valuations and, and, and resulted in certain high valuations in areas, but without doubt in our mind, the fact that many financial institutions have retrenched has led to the development of the private market opportunity set, and that continues to evolve and grow over time.
0: We're going to come on to the opportunities in a bit more detail, but I want to just touch on the definition of the endowment approach. What do we mean by the endowment approach?
1: This is an investment style which has been the sort of a hallmark, if you like, of perpetual institutions and how they manage their long term financial health. You know, endowments themselves are pools of capital looking to provide security support and funding to certain institutions. I mean, without doubt, the most famous of these have been the the US university colleges. And, you know, over time, the strategies have been investing in a multitude of different asset classes to enable those institutions to preserve, enhance, and grow wealth for their particular organisation or university. So if you think about it, each year a university might have certain requirements on funding, they might have certain donations which are given to them on an ongoing basis, and the thesis and theory is you set up an endowment financial strategy in order to take those donations, grow, preserve, and enhance that long-term wealth in order to provide an income each year to fund uh, the university and the objectives, etc., and I think that approach has been you know, warranted over time. And I think that, that approach continues to evolve and, and grow. And I think we're going to come on and talk about you know, the original architect and what we can learn from that in terms of how we express an investment strategy.
0: Well, I suppose the key point there is long term. So this is a long term investment strategy. Who coined the phrase?
1: The original sort of architect of this was, without doubt, David Swenson. You know, he was appointed as CIO to the Yale endowment scheme and actually the original name for the investment approach he then built there was the Yale model that then became the endowment model that has been taken, evolved and often replicated or copied by some but I think particularly as we look out to 2022 we are in an environment where capital markets have evolved significantly and I think you can take a lot of the
2: learnings and a lot of the theory from the original endowment approach and really give it a a reboot if you like. I think you touched on sort of the, the idea of long-term investing, which I think is very relevant for this type of organizations, because if you think about it, these are organizations that don't have a natural maturity. They're evergreen investors. They aim to exist indefinitely, to fund the university operations in this particular case, with the returns generated by a permanent pool of capital. That is meant to grow over time in two ways, as Luke said, through obviously capital contribution from students or alumni in this mm-hmm. particular case, but also through performance. So they are the sort of the ultimate long-term investor that can really think long-term. And I think we've discussed internally quite a lot this concept of long-term investing. And, and going back to the question about history, is it's definitely not a new debate. This one. Is it long-term investing versus short-term investing? private investing versus public market investing, and what are the challenges in thinking or being a long-term investor in public markets? Is it something you can do or not? And I think these topics are really not new at all. In fact, one of the most insightful texts and analysis on this, on the interplay of all these topics, dates back to the 1930s. It is actually contained in one of the most influential economic books of the 20th century, which is Keynes' General Theory, And actually, chapter 12 of that book is titled The State of Long-Term Expectations. So it's exactly on this point. And Keynes says something very interesting in that chapter and says, Of the maxims of orthodox finance, none, surely, is more antisocial than the fetish of liquidity. The doctrine that it is a positive virtue on the part of investment institutions to concentrate their resources upon the holding of liquid securities. It forgets that there is no such thing as liquidity of investment for the community as a whole. In essence, I think what Keynes is referring to here is that the use of liquidity as a risk management tool. And this is something that we in the industry sort of are quite familiar with is that the idea behind this concept is that a liquid investment is perceived less risky because if something goes wrong or something goes not according to plan, maybe I start losing money, I can get out from the investment at any moment. That's the idea behind it. But obviously this approach does not work in aggregate for the whole market. It only works for those individual Mm -hmm. investors that go first and are effectively able to front run everybody Mm -hmm. else. So, and that's why I think Keynes called it an antisocial phenomenon, Mm -hmm. really. So the argument here is that inevitably, markets organized around liquidity become an environment where everyone's trying to front run everyone else. And that means that everyone is trying to anticipate everyone else's actions and expectations in an attempt to profit. Precisely the behavior that leads to self-reinforcing price moves that we see in markets all the time. We are all very familiar with this. Uh, We've seen it also quite recently. So structurally in such an environment, it's really hard to think long term. And this is the case even if you are aware that this is happening, by the way, which is quite interesting. What happens is that if you are a professional investor, you inevitably have to concern yourself with trying to guess the average expectation or mm. the level of confidence that there is in the market, rather than focus on the genuine long-term expectation of an individual investment. And so there's another very famous Keynes quote on this point that says, even if you try to think long-term, he says, the stock market can remain irrational longer than you can stay solvent. So this is an interesting point, and it proves that it's nothing new here. However... I think Keynes in this text makes the point that I was making earlier is that private investments, historically, investments away from public markets have been the domain of entrepreneurs. But Things have changed since. And today we have investable products that allow invest in unquoted assets. And to me, uh, the key to the success of the private capital markets that have developed over the last 30, 40 years is that they have moved away from tradable securities Sort of daily mark-to-market, mm-hmm. but they have focused on self-liquidating structures, which is the typical, for mm-hmm. example, private equity structure. It, mm-hmm. Generally, in the in the industry jargon, is called LPGP structure, mm-hmm. limited partnership. The general idea is that the capital is returned to investors as and when the underlying investments are monetized. Mm-hmm. So there isn't a pre-established liquidity profile, but there is sort of an, an element of a long stop. Mm-hmm. So there is sort of beyond ten years. Then the structure gets liquidated. But within those 10 years, the liquidity that the investor received is determined by the underlying investments and monetization profile. So this just want to make this point because I think if you think about this is very crucial, is that the monetization of the underlying investments that dictates when capital is returned to investment, not the liquidity terms of the vehicle, of the fund, or the liquidity preference of the investor that dictates when the investments are liquidated. So it's a profound difference. Mm -hmm. It's it's, it's almost flipping on its head, the typical structure of a mutual fund. And it seems like a small difference, but it's a very powerful uh, distinction here. And this is what, in my opinion, allows this industry to think more long term compared to uh, the mutual Mm -hmm. fund industry, for example. And it also prevents a lot of issues like liquidity mismatches. I want to sort of
0: dig into the private market space itself and and try and understand where you see the opportunity? Because as you say, the the private market space has developed immeasurably with a strong and, and growing institutional investor base. I'm curious to know where you see the opportunity within the private market space.
2: I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the adoption of these structures and these investable products has grown significantly. And the early adopters, as we said earlier, were the US university endowments because of the structural reasons that we mentioned before, that they are evergreen permanent capital vehicles. But as these structures have become more mainstream, a lot of people have realized that these structures are suitable for them as well, because they don't necessarily need daily liquidity or short-term liquidity. A good example could be a pension fund. A pension fund is by virtue of its business and its mandate, subject to very long-term liabilities. So they are in a position to invest in a self-liquidating structure that has a 10-year horizon. And so that has led to continuous adoption of these structures by a lot of market participants, as you say. So the market has developed. Mm-hmm. And I quoted earlier the growth stats, 15% growth per annum for 20 years. Obviously, that's the power of compounding is pretty parabolic growth. So where do we see the opportunities? We even if we think that private markets are less competitive than public markets, they're not immune to the impact of flows. So as money comes in the industry, certain areas of the market, particularly the areas of the market that attract most capital, inevitably will become more competitive. It's just a natural function of the development. So I think from our perspective, as much as we can, we want to stay away from competition because competition tends to drive prices up and drive expected returns down. So all things being equal, we want to be in areas of the market that present less competition from other capital providers. And I think the concept we use to express this is the concept of barriers to entry for institutional capital. We can go into it, but there's three main barriers to entry for capital which we seek to exploit to our advantage. One is low scalability. So large institutional investors need to focus on scalable opportunities. And therefore, non-scalable opportunities, meaning small opportunities that are smaller in size, tend to benefit from reduced competition. The second one is direct sourcing, because obviously private markets not being quoted or not being formally available on a market, they need to be sourced. And sourcing investments is expensive and time-consuming. So there is a big industry out there of intermediaries that sort of broker this private investments to investors like ourselves, but at the same time they do exactly what we don't want to happen. So they incentivize competition between investors, which again drives prices up and lowers expected returns. So all things being equal, we want to identify opportunities that are not intermediated and are directly sourced by us. And last but not least, specialist expertise. So areas of private markets that require specialist knowledge or specialist expertise, Mm. tend to see less competition because most investors tend to stick to their sort of circle of competence and they don't necessarily adjust as the opportunity sets evolve. So that's the concept of barriers to entry and that's where we want to focus. Well, let's just stay on expertise
0: because I don't think, you know, this isn't an area for mom and pop type investors to access. You need a highly skilled team. You need access to deal flow. Mm-hmm. I'm curious mm-hmm. to understand what are the sort of pitfalls in the private market world. What are the sort of common mistakes in this area?
2: I think one of the pitfalls is trying to chase these opportunities that are, you know, maybe hot at the moment or more competed, where they're attracting a lot of flows, because inevitably those are the opportunities where. The opportunity set is deteriorating by virtue of those flows. But I think what's interesting here is that once you have removed from the equation of understanding or underwriting an investment opportunities, once you have removed the issues around mark to market and liquidity and sort of day to day price fluctuations, and if you look at the sort of long term drivers of the returns of an opportunities, it's relatively easy to identify what drives the returns of a private market investment. There's probably four key drivers that drive your equity returns as an investor. Number one is earnings growth over the investment period. Number two is the change in valuation. So for example, the difference between the valuation at entry and the valuation at exit. So for example, this for a business or for a company could be an earnings multiple valuation, or for a real estate asset could be a cap rate of that particular real estate asset. Third driver is leverage, which obviously magnifies the unlevered returns and transform those in equity returns, depending on how much leverage is applied. And last but not least is free cash flow generation. So where are most of the pitfalls taking place generally? I think most of the problems come out when one of these drivers that were estimated during the underwriting phase turn out very different in reality. I mean, obviously, all of them could be problematic. There could be a situation where the earnings forecast is too optimistic or where the change in valuation turned out to be different. But to me, I think, in my experience, the area has been the main cause of problems in private investments, generally leverage. Why is that? Because leverage amplifies returns on the upside, but also on the downside. And and clearly, if something goes wrong in your underwriting case, leverage will magnify the impact of each of these drivers. So the impact of earnings growth would be magnified, the impact of valuation change. Mm-hmm. So all things being equal, I would say to summarize the main pitfalls, forgetting to be mindful of competition and trying to follow the flows and to maybe underwriting investment cases that are too reliant on leverage. Mm-hmm. Because leverage you know, can be a friend, but it can be mm-hmm. also yeah. a problem. And
1: just to finish on, you want to be very, very careful and mindful of a liquidity mismatch between your underlying investment mm-hmm. and unquoted strategy direct holding and the liquidity profile of your investor and the structure you are managing that in. You know we have seen examples in you know the open-ended fund world, mm-hmm. both in listed equities have tried to include certain unquoted investments in their strategy and the daily dealing fund structure that has become. That came unstuck. That's proven to be a recipe for trouble. And secondly, you know, not only including listed and uh, unquoted in one daily dealing structure, but just having completely illiquids such as commercial real estate in a daily dealing structure. You, know, you are completely at the mercy of the investor base to continue to provide capital and subscriptions or at least lack of redemptions at any one time. Clearly, you cannot manage a uh, a real estate fund on a daily dealing basis when it takes you anywhere between two to six months to sell an underlying asset. And we think it's very, very clear that if you are going to invest into private markets, you need to do it in a suitable structure that suits you and the other investors from a liquidity standpoint. The other thing I just wanted to highlight is go winding back a little bit and thinking about the endowment approach and what the original thesis was and why investors would even want to consider it. Well, the architect of this, as we discussed, with David Swenson at, at Yale, was of the belief that if you were going to compound and grow capital over time, clearly introducing a level of diversification into your asset allocation was a wise thing to do. Now, that's sort of almost taken as a, as a certain and a free lunch today as an essential part of portfolio construction. But at the time, back in 1985, you know, when he was allocating to managers at that stage mm-hmm. in the VC space in the hedge fund arena. You know, these were areas of the capital markets which really were in their infancy. And so he was really thinking outside the traditional confines of portfolio construction in both diversification, large percentage exposure to alternative asset classes, and being bottom-up. Mm. You know, those endowments do not take short-term asset allocation swings on equity-de-fixed income or VC, VPE. You know, you are looking to deliver returns from a bottom-up basis access to the asset class, and indeed in Yale, and many endowments, access through specialist managers. And we've come on to talk about you know, how we might take that and think about using some of those positive attributes from a portfolio construction standpoint, but thinking about how we can implement it, perhaps mm-hmm. in a more effective or a means to access some of those smaller opportunities, niches plays that Lorenzo was talking mm-hmm. about.
0: So actually, we are going to introduce the endowment fund a bit later, but before we do, I, I wonder how important you think being able to access both private and public market securities is and being able to go across that sort of yeah. illiquidity spectrum. Yeah. And why is that so important?
1: Yeah, we do think that is really important, right? I know we've spent a lot of time here uh, today talking about the private market opportunity set, but actually, within the listed arena, you know, having a permanent evergreen capital structure allows us to take higher conviction and also earlier stage opportunities in the listed space. You know, the constraints of managing either bespoke portfolios or daily dealing funds from a liquidity standpoint can limit that investment universe. So there are a couple of things. As broader opportunity set, there's also the relative value case to be made to say, look, as a global multi-asset investor investing across both public and private markets, we can take the relative value on offer in specific areas and judge whether it is worthwhile taking the illiquidity premium of a private market opportunity versus a listed opportunity. Yeah. So that, I think, is really, really important in terms of ensuring we are targeting the best long-term returns. And the final point for why listed and, indeed, private markets can buy well in an overall portfolio is it takes time to invest into certain private market opportunities. You might have a commitment schedule over, a drawdown profile over two, three, four, even five years. We don't want to be in an environment where we have significant parts of an investment portfolio in cash waiting for uh, that capital to be called to a particular opportunity. So we believe we can earn some return on that capital and equally allows us to express and get into some of the opportunities that we may know about Mm. at an earlier stage in their trajectory and life cycle but also not be able to express as much conviction as we like elsewhere in portfolios.
0: And so what are those opportunities? What kind of opportunities are you finding most compelling at the moment?
2: From a very sort of high level standpoint we can say that certain areas of real assets offer very interesting opportunities particular transportation assets For example, things like aircraft leasing or other sort of transportation assets like shipping or similar assets, which tend to have sort of long-term characteristics in terms of usable life and uh, utility for economic activity. These assets tend to uh, lend themselves very well to be invested through private structure rather than sort of being in the liquid markets. Going back to the relative value point that Luke was making, uh, we see areas where private markets offer significant yield pickup compared to the public market equivalent. That example is credit. If you look at public credit markets today, for example, the high yield market, you can almost get double the return if you move to sort of private credit, uh, which is, I think, very interesting compensation for the liquidity premium. And I think this is part of the. What I think is very powerful about this model that combines private and public is that this discipline to always comparing returns available in public markets, almost using public markets equivalent as a benchmark or as a hurdle rate for your private allocation, I think it's a very powerful discipline to have. And I think it's quite unique, actually. I think outside of sort of the endowment world, there's sort of this very long-term, permanent pools of capital. I don't think, well, people out there do that. And I think it's, it's a big differentiating factor.
0: It's obviously been kind enjoyable talking about private markets, but there is a purpose to this podcast. And later this year, we are going to be launching an investment trust, the Endowment Fund, the Waverton Endowment Fund. Luke, I wonder if you can give us the elevator pitch for the Endowment Fund, setting out the investment objective and key differentiator.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for the uh, plug, Doug. Uh, much appreciated. I hope we've given a bit of an overview today on the sort of thinking behind why we would like to have a structure and a listed vehicle that gives us the ability to take and invest in this growing opportunity set in unquoted investments, but also express some of our ideas from a global unconstrained basis in the listed arena. We think it's a really exciting project. We think there is an opportunity, without doubt, in our minds for an ever-increasing role in private markets and investment portfolios, and indeed to design and build and launch a portfolio building block for portfolios, which takes some part of the return aspect that fixed income has been delivering for portfolios for the last 30 to 40 years. So that's why we're doing it. What are we seeking to achieve? Well. The endowment fund is going to, much like we've been discussing, seek to preserve, grow and enhance the real purchasing power of capital over time. We've given it a CPI-linked performance objective, so UK CPI plus four over the medium to long term. That should come from a combination of capital and income. Our strategic asset allocation is based on our long-term return assumptions, and we are looking to ensure that we can access, where possible, the opportunities on a direct basis and will have significant exposure to both alternatives but also some part of the listed arena in real assets, uh, listed equity, and some parts of the fixed income market. We are looking to provide some downside protection here, both through the asset allocation and inherent diversification benefits, but also through the use of our internal protection strategy. We think this might have appeal as a portfolio building block return seeking long only alternative and we're excited about the proposition the other final thing which does very much speak to the endowment approach is that we as a business are committing a certain percentage of our management fee to buy shares in the company on an ongoing basis and form and create an endowment foundation the use of which will be for charitable causes on an ongoing basis you know we're very excited about the project we'd be delighted to help provide any further information if anybody uh, thought this had appeal we very much hope we can bring the, the company to uh, fruition in q1
0: this year exciting prospects quite a long elevator there luke luke eyed lorenzo Marchioni. thank you for joining me
2: thanks very much thank you
0: Thank you for listening to the Yinvest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guests this week, Luke Hyde Smith and Lorenzo Marchioni. As I said at the beginning, if you have any more questions on private market investing or indeed the endowment fund, do email us at yinvest at waverton.co.uk. Thank you for listening. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be
2: considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.